Welcome to our second episode of the Sunday Hustlers podcast. My name is Ezra. My name is Robert. I'm Patty X. I hope you enjoyed our discussion of the memory piece, and I hope we inspired some interesting monologues and dialogues. This week, we're super excited to be covering the newest novel by Daniel Kemen, Till. This book has been such a challenging read that really enlightened us on human nature, the politics of Germany in the 1600s, and the history of the Thirty Years' War. But Till is a novel about more than just history. It's about war, the intersecting hypocrisies of pseudoscience and religion, the concept of heritage, freedom, education, and much more that we'll dive into. Yeah, so, uh, guys, that was a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in Till, right? But uh, let me ask, what was y'all's favorite part of the book? Uh, well, Just my, keeping it easy. Yeah, we can yeah, yeah. go first. Uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah, my favorite part of the book is the nonlinear storyline of the novel. Man, yeah. um, it was such a fun challenge uh, to go through the plot in my head and kind of piece it together during and like after reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the feeling of, <clears throat> of finishing a challenging book like this and thinking about like what a long and like strenuous ride it was. Mm-hmm. Um, Till was a very strange read, but uh, it's more and more enjoyable the more you talk about it. And we talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so like uh, Ezra was saying, I think it's very likely that once everyone reads this book, they're going to feel the same exact way as you, Ezra. Uh, but what, what I think makes this book fascinating is the commitment that come and put into it. Uh, reading it almost felt like a personal challenge, but once you realize how the story unfolds, you get to read more about Till, and it feels like a carnival. What yeah. I really enjoyed was breaking down the book with everybody and researching more about the real Till and the Third Years' War itself. I thought that was something the podcast offered all of us. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting that it's almost impossible to not think about this book every day after you finish reading it, and it's just yeah. books like these that just really amp up these kind of discussions and what this podcast really wants to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely um, enjoyed uh, the book as this entire uh, literary world, I think that you get so many parallels to today, like the modern the modern politics and stuff like that, which we, we can talk about yeah. later. And then you also just get windows into like you know the hypocrisy of of people in power. The the I love I always love the idea of like the traveling jester and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. So I, I like definitely enjoyed. Every every little element about this book, I soaked up the history section. You did a good job when we get yeah. to that point. Yeah, and I I loved kind of like the the fictional realism and the kind of mystical, fantastical elements of this book. And so I think Robert, you want to tell us a little more about uh, Till, like the yes, publication. This is my book? favorite part, yeah, of course, the rudimentary materials of the book. So of course we have the title Till, mm-hmm. uh, just his name, Daniel Kilman. Uh, wrote the book and started in 2013. He is a German and Austrian residence, uh, but he lives all over the place. He lives in pretty cool places. Uh, this copy of Till was translated by Ross Benjamin. He's done two other books for Till. Uh, both are being adapted. One into a movie, which was You Should Have Left. That one was pretty good. And it's also a short story. And then, of course, Till, which is being turned into a Netflix show, I think. Excited. Yeah. Oh, yeah <laughs> Everybody's excited for that, yeah. <laughs> And this was featured by Pantheon again, just like Memory Police, published in 2020, uh, another division of Penguin Random House. So they've they just, just been killing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they're choosing the good stuff for us. Uh, I have to say, I do I do love the covers as well that they oh, keep no, choosing the, for these. You know, yeah. most of the covers, for once, when you, if you look them up, all the covers look great. Oh, like yeah. The German edition looks really cool. It's got like a war-torn like imagery on it. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty neat. But then I like ours for yeah. once. It's ours is the, cool. the guy walking the tightrope. We have yeah, that it's got tire, it's got With the, weird symbols on the, the spine. The Led Zeppelin symbols on the spine. Yeah, pretty cool. But of course, uh, again, this book was originally published in German in 2017. And, you know, they say that this is the, the German translation. If you ever know it, that's one of the best reads for this book. Mm-hmm. They say it just really captivates, like, 
their heritage. Oh my gosh! So it's pretty cool. So yeah, um, of course, Kevin was born in Munich. Uh, he has a his family was actually background for like the movie, movie industry. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in this mm-hmm. kind of like literary world and just always inspired by that stuff. Yeah. So he lives in a currently lives in New York and Berlin, but I also read he also lives in Venice too. Oh wow! Yeah, every book just shows somewhere else that he lives now. Just everywhere we're yeah, not. So he's just <laughs> living in cool literary places. That's yeah, amazing. Uh, and it's really hard. It was really hard to look him up, but uh, he's got plenty of awards. He's a novelist and a playwright. I think also following his father's mother's path. Uh, I think everybody might know who Thomas Mann is. Yeah, I, 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 people do. I know who Thomas Mann is. So if, <laughs> if any of our listeners out there are a Thomas Mann fan, uh, he's actually converting one of his novels, Confessions of Felix Krull, uh, The Confidence Man. So I think he's turning that into a movie. I actually yeah. found that book at a bookstore yeah. like a week ago. Nice. And it's a, I didn't grab it because it seems a little, it's a really old book. Kelman always, in a lot of his interviews, talks about Thomas Mann. So you could definitely tell that's an inspiration to him. It, let me ask you, off the top of your head, do you know if like that's like the first time like um, that Daniel Kelman is trying to like adapt something for like the movie screen? No, I don't think so. But like I said, it's kind of hard. To, it was kind of hard to find things that he's getting into or is done like that, other than what he's written. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he only has like a few yeah. translations of works, and Ross Benjamin is not the only one. But I think maybe. He might just be doing this one, but I'm I'm pretty sure he's gonna put his foot until that's that's yeah. that's gonna pretty 100% cool, gonna happen. And you know, yeah. it's kind of nice that like he finds commitment in that, or at least like some kind of like likeness to it, because mm-hmm. that means you know that he's not just gonna be on the sidelines watching something that he created, yeah, adapted without his involved. input. Yeah, that's I great. think that's really nice. Nice. I always think it's really dope when um when when writers try to like like when writers start like uh writing like scripts and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it's his it's his baby. So I mean, like it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, I hope they do a good job. I think it's the people who did Dark. Uh, same oh, people right. doing the show. Oh, uh, if you have, that's a good show. Uh, I think they're gonna it, good choice. I think so. Yeah. I think yeah, I think it's gonna be a good show. I mean, I'm definitely hyped for it. I'll watch the the Till adaptation. This Confessions of Felix Quill. Yeah, well, <laughs> I want to come watch that too. So I think before we get into a review of Till, we should probably discuss the Thirty Years War. Till's personal journey is intertwined with this larger historical conflict, and Till's traveling show takes us from the war's beginning as a local religiously fueled conflict, and he journeys by our side until the complex international peace negotiations at the finale. So many of the themes of Till probe historicity and authenticity, so I think it's critical to any discussion of Till to at least have a background or a little bit of understanding about the Thirty Years' War. What we want to highlight are some of the underlining root causes, as well as provide an overview of the phases of the war for readers of Till, who, like us, didn't know about the 30s before diving into the book. This is definitely not the definitive history of the 30s war. We just want to provide some background as it applies to the novel by Daniel Kelman and help explain or highlight the historical importance of the events taking place in or alongside the narrative. If you'd like to skip this history section, please skip to 20 minutes and 7 seconds. And so I think a great place to start breaking down a little bit of the history is with the name, the Thirty Years' War, because just like the conflict itself, it's a little bit beguiling. The Thirty Years' War was actually a long-simmering conflict that sprang from decades of unresolved tension from early six, from the early 16th century that eventually festered into an international quagmire and decades of truly grueling warfare. Early scholarship of the Thirty Years' War is limited, is limited in perspective and tended to group the conflict into a larger trend of European holy wars whilst constricting the focus to uh, German interpretations. However, uh, by the 20th century, historians began to revisit the Thirty Years' War and recontextualized the war as a conflict 
initially localized in the kingdom of Bohemia and rooted in unresolved issues from the 16th century reformations uh, that later ballooned uh, due to continued foreign intervention into a military political quagmire. And uh, it was a real shit show. (laughs) Modern historians recontextualize the conflict not as a European holy war, but as a greater dynastic power struggle between all these competing European kingdoms that kept intervening in this local conflict as a way to improve their political power. The Peace of Westphalia, which officially signaled the formal end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, redrew the balance of power. This introduced ideas regarding sovereignty, nation-states, and international relations that would be central to Western politics. The Thirty Years' War officially began with the second defenestration of Prague. Uh, Don't worry, guys. Uh, Defenestration is just a fancy word for tossing people outside of windows. (laughs) That was my favorite part of the book, too. Yeah. So, yeah, this this war got started when some dudes uh, were thrown out of a second-story window. Yeah, pretty dire stuff. But the problems that caused that sudden eruption of violence had been simmering since Martin Luther pinned his 95 Thesis to the door of All Saints Church. The subsequent war that erupted from the defenestration began as a series of localized disputes. But over the course of 30 years of politicking, positioning, and intervention by boarding empires, the war festered into a chaotic conflict that devastated Europe. Had peasants convinced the world was ending, permanently crippled the Holy Roman Empire, and eventually laid the foundation for what is the modern nation-state. So to understand the implications of the second defenestration of Prague, we have to look back at the initial nailing of the 95 Thesis and the Greater Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation officially began in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed, mailed and nailed his 95 Thesis, and by 1618, 101 years later, Martin Luther had transformed theological thought in Europe and created a permanent schism in Western Christianity. The Protestant Reformation signaled a split between the unity of the crown and the cross. The Pope of the Catholic Church and the elected emperor duly ruled the Holy Roman Empire. However, as the Protestant movement gained traction among, among scholars, politicians, and the peasantry, local conflicts about tolerance and land ownership brewed, whilst a larger system of government, which intertwined a mix of monarchy with the institution of the Catholic Church, began to be seriously questioned. Tensions between Protestants and Catholics simmered in the Holy Roman Empire, with both sides staking claim to territory for the next 100 years, until the official start of the Thirty Years' War in 1618. Catholics and Protestants in the Holy Roman Empire continually clashed on issues of land ownership, tolerance, and political power. During this 100-year period, a series of treaties between the Holy Roman Empire and coalitions of Lutheran princes were passed to try to ease tensions. Most notable of these treaties was the Peace of Augsburg, signed in 1555, which actually, for the time, managed to resolve some conflicts in the immediate, but still failed to create a lasting peace between Protestants and Catholics. And for pretty much this entire period, the Kingdom of Bohemia, which was a huge land percentage of the Holy Roman Empire, was openly practicing Protestantism. The Kingdom of Bohemia sought to expand religious freedom and concentrate power in Protestant hands. However, the royal government, led by the Catholic Ferdinand II, opposed the Protestant nobility's actions and applied increasing pressure to the Kingdom of Bohemia to reign in religious liberties and reaffirm Catholic rule. Tensions finally came to a head in 1618 when Ferdinand II sent four Catholic Lord Regents 
to stop the construction of a Protestant church on royal lands. The four Catholic Lord Regents arrived at Prague with a sternly worded letter from the emperor demanding that the Protestants cease building the church and condemning those that took part in the plot. Upon receiving this letter, the Prague Protestants accused the Catholic Lord Regents of pushing a plot to rob Protestants of their religious freedom and in their anger tossed two Catholic Lord Regents yep. from the second story building <laughs> of a Prague castle. One and two. <laughs> uh, the second defenestration brought, the, brought tensions between Protestants Protestant Bohemia and the Catholic Empire to a head and ignited what we know now as the Thirty Years' War. During the initial turmoil, the Kingdom of Bohemia rejected the election of Ferdinand II as Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and in a bold move elected their own king, Frederick V, Rip. the Winter King, as we'll get to know him as. Thus begin just then this begins the Thirty Years' War. The war was fought in four distinct phases, the Bohemian Revolt, the Danish Intervention, the Swedish Intervention, and lastly, the French intervention. We'll briefly touch on those four phrases. Or phases. The first phase. In 1618, the Bohemian Revolt begins with the aforementioned defenestration. And for two years until 1620, the armies of the, king- the Kingdom of Bohemia and the Holy Roman Empire mostly comprised mercenaries, sellswords, and hired soldiers from outlying countries skirmished whilst Frederick V and Holy Roman Empire Ferdinand II continued to politic and posture. The first official battle of the Thirty Years' War was the Battle of White Mountain, fought on November 8, 1620. The battle saw the Bohemian forces easily routed and was a decisive victory for the Holy Roman Empire. 21st century historians have stressed that the total defeat suffered by the Kingdom of Bohemia appeared to be a logical stopping point for the conflict. The Bohemian resistance had been crushed, with the army in shambles and King Frederick on the run. However, instead of ending, the war enters into an even more brutal second phase as the Danish king, a Protestant who owns territory in the Holy Holy Roman Empire, fears that the Holy Roman Empire is intended to reclaim the lands and thus enter the war on the Protestant side. The Dutch, however, are easily defeated on three separate fronts and Ferdinand II, feeling emboldened by this string of victories, passed an Edict of Restitution decreeing that all lands taken from the Catholic Church after 1555 be restored. Modern historians argue that by 1629, after that defeat of Bohemia and now Danish forces, the war had another logical ending point. However, Ferdinand II's harsh edict ensured a sustained opposition to the emperor. And so, the war continues into the third phase. By 1630, now 12 years officially into the conflict, the Protestants appeared to be on the verge of defeat. However, Protestants and Swedish King Gustav Adolphus II invade the Holy Roman Empire, marking a sharp turn in the war. Swedish soldiers, backed by French funds, uh, successfully reinvigorate the Protestant cause and gain several major victories against the Holy Roman Empire, improving the position of the Protestants and significantly weakening the position of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Adolphus, Gustavus Adolphus leads a successful military campaign against the Holy Roman Empire and through his new use of military techniques, inventions, and engineering, such as the introduction of the devastating mobile artillery, which we see until, he becomes known as the father of modern warfare. That's right, Call of Duty kids. <laughs> <laughs> 
Although the Swedish army does suffer a couple setbacks from 1630 to 1635, uh, Gustavus Adolphus has stunning military success. However, he is killed after the Battle of Lutzen, and uh, the death of Gustavus Adolphus creates a void in Protestant leadership and France, who had been funding um, the anti-Habsburgs through back channels, became the dominant power on the Protestant side. Uh, this is despite the fact that the French uh, were actually officially <coughs> Catholic at the time. With both sides weakened and a void in Protestant leadership, the war enters into its final phase in 1635, the French phase. For two years, fighting, politicking, and posturing by both sides continued until in 1637, Ferdinand II died and was succeeded by Ferdinand III. Ferdinand III recognized the devastation and perpetual state of stalemate between both armies and saw that a military solution was deteriorating. For five more years, armies composed of French, Dutch, Swedish, and Bohemian soldiers fought against a Spanish-Holy Roman Empire alliance, with both sides trading victories. In 1642, preliminary discussions for peace ensured, but it was not until 1648 that negotiations were complete and the Peace of Westphalia was signed. Although the, P- the Peace of Westphalia formally signaled the end of the Thirty Years' War, the French and Spanish would continue fighting until 1663. The legacy of the Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia. For 30 years, Central Europe was devastated by perpetual warfare, famine, disease, and destruction. Although the Thirty Years' War initially began as a local conflict of religious tolerance that had multiple logical ending points, due to continued international intervention, the war, sno- the war snowballed into a military quagmire that was of a larger conflict between the French Bourbons and Austro-Spanish Habsburgs. It is important to note that even though the conflict is considered a German civil war, the majority of forces fighting were not necessarily citizens of the Holy Roman Empire. Armies on each side primarily consisted of foreign troops, mercenaries, sellswords, and soldiers by trade who had defected from one side to the other depending on war conditions. Further, it is important to point out that the Thirty Years' War did not have to last 30 years at all. The conflict could have been resolved at a local level, but festered into a prolonged military entanglement through international intervention. International belligerents on each side used the civil conflict as an opportunity to hone their statecraft, skills and improve their individual position within the larger European balance of power. And as each side politicked for power through tenuous treaties and shaky alliances, the war became less about the express religion conf- express religious conflict and more about the balance of power. Thus, the sustained international intervention was a strategy used to prolong the war for the greater purpose of weakening the Holy Roman Empire. While modern historians can point to specific policy and military goals, there is no doubt that the European populace would have felt that the Thirty Years' War had devolved from a local conflict into an unsolvable military conflict and war for war's sake. Uh, The Peace of Westphalia, although it did not entirely cease fighting, is significant because it helped establish some of the most basic principles of the modern nation-state that we know today. The Peace of Westphalia is actually a name given to a group of peace treaties. The treaties created the principle of non-interference in domestic affairs and international law. This basically means that countries uh, could not interfere with the domestic concerns of another country, particularly in the realm of religious practices. More, the treaty also established the state's exclusive sovereignty over its own territory. That is, each state, regardless of its size, 
had a right to its own autonomous governing body. The Westphalian system was a status quo order that helped redraw the balance of power in Europe and is widely recognized by political scientists as a beginning of our modern international system. Wow, we did wow. it, guys. Yeah, yeah I know. The, so history portion is my favorite part because, I mean, yeah. like, as we talked about in the beginning, understanding the history mm-hmm. was something we kind of figured afterwards. I mean, yeah. we get a brief portion. Every reader is going to understand what's kind of going on. But if you really want to know what it's about, it was definitely worth looking up and learning about. Mm-hmm. Or you could just listen to that part of the podcast. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I mean, we just summed everything up for you guys. There you go. History, <laughs> and it's very interesting because, like I said, what the Peace of Westphalia ended up doing was pretty much what we do now. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same kind of treatise. Yeah, that was made a, that's like hundreds of years ago. Yeah, and then when you look at like the the conflict and the way the conflict evolved, and like all these people just kept sticking their hand into this local conflict mm-hmm. and like kind of just like pumping it up. Uh, it sounds a little bit like the uh, military quagmires we recently had in like the Middle East in like the last, I don't know, like 20 or 30 years. It's currently like right now where everybody's trying to Dip their feet in some protecting somebody, and somebody's yeah. protecting who from somebody else. So and it's just like conflict just uh, intertwining. Yeah. So uh getting back to Till, I guess, now that we've uh give, given our readers a little bit more history, mm-hmm. um, I thought that uh Till was a strange and, and fascinating, super fascinating read with this uh historical knowledge in mind. I, I like and I really love historical fiction because it gives you this concrete starting point while still invoking this literary imagination. And I think Kalman uh, recreates a vivid image of 16th century Europe that's really plagued by this war and this disease that stems from this kind of rotting hypocrisy. Yeah, Cummins really doesn't want to be defined as somebody who writes a lot of magical realism, but he <laughs> loves it. Yeah. So doing that to talk about a war where, you know, these kind of things existed, like these kind of mythical stories very still prominent, this was just perfect. So, yeah, I think we could do some reviews uh, from each of us. Mm-hmm. I think, would you like to go first, Patty? Oh, go ahead, man. Yeah, yeah, Robert, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. You're good, man. Oh, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. definitely a book worth reading more than once. And if you uh, don't want to reread, we can recommend an Audible. Uh, if you're one of those readers who just files information in your brain and you'll note, and you notice all the fun ways come and ties up his characters, then that's pretty fun, yeah. too. <laughs> you can uh, hit us up and see if maybe find other connections and we could talk to each other about that. Even reading it for the first time, though, I was overtaken with the truthfulness of this, that this book exposes by exposing the inner self uh, when put into manipulated settings, kind of like how Till treats everybody as a stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. also how words can have so much power when used to make fun of somebody. Oh, absolutely. Because we see a lot of that. And um, especially when Till has his permit to do so, which I think is the best part. It's also a reminder that wars aren't fought by those we think are are high and mighty. True. That most of the people that take toll in wars are just the little people. Mm-hmm. And we see plenty of perspectives in that in Till. Yeah, the innocent Pay for the, the high price mm-hmm. of a war. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it really about the innocence of the people, uh, what you're getting at, you know. Uh, I think it's an idea of uh, innocence that we lose really early on, uh, right f- with the b- ending to shoes, the first chapter. Yeah. Uh, but we see it creep in uh, kind of with uh, small moments of, like, laughter and insane pseudoscience from uh, yeah. Dr. Kitcher, the character. But... Uh, even though it may not be intentionally innocent, you know, that's kind of what I thought of. Um, there's a lot of juxtaposition between the stark reality of the 30-year war and life there and what some characters perceive as reality. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, I think this all illustrates the darkness and light that are both in the novel. Mm-hmm. 
since many characters are stuck in the world that they're born into, they really have no idea what the world is like. The rich stay in castles, the religious work in churches, the common people work their whole life in the same village unless they get drawn to war. And we only see what the life is truly like for the entire country through Till, you know, a free man in an unfree world. And furthermore, I mean, we only get this skillful way um, and insight into the life of all these people because of the way Kelman weaves this character Till into each chapter, almost to the point that he's a side character sometimes. And I, for one, appreciate this book more and more each day and the more we talk about it. And I really admire the time and effort Kelman put into this novel. And, for, and so... For these reasons, and a whole lot more, I definitely recommend you guys read Till uh, if you haven't. And if you have a hard time getting through it, stick with it. It's a super rewarding novel. Uh, With that being said, though, I think we should get uh, further into our discussion uh, with the characters of the book. We can start off with characters, of course, before we start getting more into it. So, of course, we're going to talk about Till, who is our main character. Mm -hmm. And his role is the traveling jester. Although he is part of the Thirty Years' War in Kelman's novel, Kelvin actually plucked him from a German folklore in the late 14th century. He is believed to have been an actual person, but unfortunately, he is not. Although he does have a marked tombstone, which kind of just amps up his like his it character. Just yeah, adds it fuel just, to the legend. Really you want to believe it, man? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: His last name can be translated to, which is Uhlenspiegel. Till Uhlenspiegel, his last name can be translated to Owl Glass or Owl Mirror. These names have a very similar way of describing Till. The owl is interpreted to be a wise reflection, and the mirror is a symbol to place reflection upon society to judge itself's wrongful desires and hypocritical natures. The original tales of Till tell the lessons he meant to prove with his very harmless but ill-intended pranks, mm-hmm. uh, which we still see in Till. Mm-hmm. But two centuries later, our Till is still very similar in that Kilman plops him into the Thirty Years' War, where he uses Spiegel, his last name and its meanings, to reflect against the entire populace of the citizens governments and religious orders during the 30 years war and um you know i reading through this book um there's this one line that really stuck out to me yeah uh it's from till and i think it's great it's a he says dying is nothing it happens so quickly it's no big thing take one false step one leap make one movement and you're no longer alive that's it and I think this is a belief uh, we see Till live by through the novel. And I believe it's the driving force for everything he does in the book, mm-hmm. too. You know, it's born from this experience he has as a child, but may have some roots to his father, too, um, who could not say one step ahead yeah. of life. You know, um, that's why... He was I, always so behind. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is why Till lets go of so many things in his life through the story. Um because he's trying to stay one step ahead of death. Yeah. And, you know, if he becomes too attached to something, he'll end up dying. And it's like walking one step ahead of the fall when he's on the tightrope. Tight it's like how Patty said earlier in quotes, he's a, what, a free man? A free man. Yeah. Kind of a free man, but yeah. uh, maybe not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just to reemphasize for our readers, uh, Till is not our narrator. Yeah, so he is read the book, not, he's the, not narrator. the narrator. He is what was privileged to be as somewhat of a side character. Uh, Mm -hmm. One thing that makes me curious about Till, though, is his mind. And as you read, uh, we just know that one of his greater tricks is the high wire, as Ezra said, and also what was represented on the cover of our books. Oh, yeah. But he often says to himself that that skill required practice. So it's not like it was some kind of elevated thing that he was born with. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, 
Kelman also wanted to emphasize that too, that for an artistry like that, it's, it's always the will of the person it's practiced. I think that's a very interesting trait. Yeah. But his mind, his wit, Attils, and his candor make him unique, but also mysterious. I say mysterious because his mind would have grown from being raised by Klaus, his father, and someone with the longest chapter, of course, um, but could also be a product of his own determination. Mm-hmm. And so his father's theoretical mind, how, as we are saying, he was always like, a few steps behind, even though his mind was so far ahead. I feel like Till was able to use all of that by being raised by his father and just kind of seeing that. But I feel like it's kind of in the back of his mind. Some, something else is driving Till. Yeah, yeah. I- uh, yeah, I, I love that uh, you bring that up because I want to say, uh, first, uh, probably uh, maybe non-German readers uh, might not know this, but Till uh, is actually based off like a fictional uh, folk character from a uh, really old uh, German folklore. And the fir- really, I think the modern conception of Till comes from two major works. The first one was a chapbook of tales published. Uh, where Till, you don't really find out like the beautiful backstory of Till like we do in this novel. Uh, he's just this kind of jester that goes around mocking mocking rich people and mocking <laughs> yeah. like those that the highborn and stuff like that. And so that was maybe like the first major work of uh, Till that was discovered. It was his chapbook. And then I believe that maybe like 200 years or so later, that was maybe in like the 16th century it was discovered. Uh, I'm sorry, in the 1600s, not the 16th century. And like the 1600s, it was discovered. 200 years later, uh, this guy discovers it uh, in the 1800s and starts uh, reworking these stories again uh, with that same uh, slant, making them these uh, satirical portrayals of like hypocrisy in society and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and then so we he, just see Kelman. Yeah, I think he was kind of like a Robin awesome. Hood character. He he was a like he was a Robin Hood character, I think, but he's a little more um. Like, he's not as just, he's a little more jokey, he's a little more (laughs) farcical, and he's a little bit, he's less, like, taking from the rich and giving to the poor in this very, like, uh, noble action, and more, like, exposing how full of BS uh, the rich are and the ruling class are. Yeah. Uh, And so, and and in those uh, uh, stories, uh, Till has a girlfriend, in those uh, old historical stories, Till has a girlfriend in... This story, uh, she's just his companion, which is uh, Nayla. And uh, Nayla is another major character in Daniel Kelman's Till. She's a singer and dancer that travels with Till as part of his wandering company. Nayla meets Till in their childhood village, where they quickly become friends. After Till's life is changed by the Jesuits, Nayla decides to join Till as a traveling performer, running away not just from her home, but the future she doesn't want, and for a freedom she does not yet know the vastness of. Uh, together, Teal and Nayla wander across Europe, first with a cruel mentor and later by themselves performing for the masses. Mm-hmm. I liked yeah. her too. Oh, yeah, I love. I great. think everyone loved Nayla. I was so glad that Kalman uh, gave her like a lot of. I felt like he gave her a lot, like, a lot of literary dignity, literary yeah. respect. Yeah. Oh, definitely. He definitely yeah. prosed her to be the more ho- like. I don't know. There's not a lot of hope built for her throughout the story. You get that later. Without on. giving anything like away, I think we can all confidently say she's maybe like the most successful character in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as a theme we talk about later, I think most of the female characters we talk about are the most successful. Yeah, yeah okay. that's true. Oh, well, some of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the next character we wanted to check, uh, we'll introduce you guys to is check Klaus. Him up. <laughs> check him up. Uh, Klaus is Till's father, a poor miller in their hometown, 
And funny enough, is actually the same name of Till's father in real life, quote unquote, as <laughs> at least from the, the sources. Yeah. Like in the chapbooks. Yeah, in the chapbooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Close may be a miller, but he is actually a self-educated man and naturally inquisitive who is unfortunately wasting away as a miller. His story may not seem important at first, but it's also the origin of Till in his view of the world. So, Klaus spends most of his time studying magic, contemplating strange questions about the universe, until his curiosity and ambition get the better of him when he meets the two Jesuits. Now, the two Jesuits, the first one is Dr. Tesmond. He's a traveling Jesuit from the Society of Jesus and is the mentor of Dr. Kitcher, who we first meet in The Lord of Air. Uh, He's a doctor of medicine, theology, and chemicus specializing in trachyntology. Glad I said that right. <laughs> and so, Doctor Tesman carries a weight of authority, religiously, and the justice system of in in this justice system of this medieval world they live in. When we first meet Doctor Tesman, we know him as a traveling Jesuit in search of witches and warlocks to cleanse the world of impurity. But in reality, though. He is on the run across Europe from the Holy Roman Empire for his political ties and ambitions. And then secondly, Dr. Kitcher, he is the second Jesuit. His story is intertwined throughout the novel in two separate chapters. In the beginning, he is a young Jesuit who follows Dr. Tesman around Germany, but later he becomes famous for many writings on science, religion, music, dialect, and more. Although he had written many books, he remains questionable to us, the reader, and other educated men in the story, uh, and other scholars. Uh, he's unrecognized and contradicted many times by these, his contemporaries. Uh, we realize later on uh, his ideas are, have no <laughs> current common sense, actually. Uh, an example is his attempt to use snail blood as a cure for the plague because it has, quote-unquote, similar traits to dragon's bile. Gross. <laughs> His tale becomes full circle, though, uh, towards the end. Uh, and like with everyone else's story, it ends with Till. Yeah, and Dr. Kircher was actually a real person. Yeah? Oh, yeah. So no his, way. Yeah, his studies were actually revered. Like, yeah, he was very, up to a certain point, People actually thought he was the smartest person on well, the planet. Well, his ideas is crazy in real oh, life as they are absolutely. in the book. They're even oh. crazier. Yeah, what? so like, there's just <laughs> like, and the thing is, like, he wasn't a, a practitioner of his own theories. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he would just write things out, and then later on, people would find these books and like try to do them. And like, yo, this dude is bonkers. And eventually, his name <laughs> was just kind of like erased, you know. But he was up there, yeah. like in the book. You talk about how he's from the, with the Pope and all that. Yeah, like he held that type of power status wow. yeah. yeah and just for writing stupid things <laughs> yeah it's insane i think his stuff is like is the light and the, the funny stuff in, in the book i mean you laugh at it because it's yeah. just like you think somebody who talks about dragons must be cool but in reality you just see like how demented <laughs> yeah yeah insane and yeah. so yeah moving on uh, another character that also existed uh, in history is uh, frederick of the palatinate so, also known historically as the Winter King, uh, we follow him and the Winter Queen's endeavors to survive throughout the war without an army or aid from others, and also an imperial band linking over them, linking over them like this uh, creeping death. Um, we're pretty much given uh, Frederick's side of, of the story, we're given deep insight in that, and then we learn about uh, kind of his feudal reign, the complete loss of, of his respect, 
And even though I think that we as leaders uh, want to want to dump on this guy even more if we being like such a such a weak willed hypocrite, at least he's <laughs> in, presented in the book. Uh, he's given like uh, uh, he's given our sympathies as well. Yeah. He's given a sympathetic yeah. kind of like um, foolish, you know, a fool's death, I think. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, like most of the characters that are on his side are just kind of like a couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's through them that we get those kind of sympathies. And I like that. But uh, of course, can't get sympathy for Frederick unless we talk about Elizabeth, his wife. Yep. Uh, she's also the daughter of King James of England, which was part of the war eventually too, but not towards the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the story, we see flashbacks to Elizabeth as a young princess. Uh, she was obsessed, of course, with pageantry, theater, and the eventual promise of queenhood. And so you'll see those kind of drives throughout the story yeah. with her character. However, in the present, we meet Elizabeth at the bitter end of her short reign as queen. Uh, towards the end, she's held up in the Prague Castle, but as Patty mentioned earlier, Frederick of the Palatine had a lingering ban over his head, so they were always traveling too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, after Frederick meets his untimely demise, Elizabeth is forced into exile, and we just see her use her unique set of skills as a former queen and a theater lover, lover to, na- to navigate her own position in the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. And ultimately, she was a very ruthless character, too. Mm-hmm. She's great, man. And, of course, well, at the end of characters, we can't not talk about the most main character. Of Oregonus, The key, <laughs> the skeleton key to understanding Till. Oregonus the donkey. <laughs> it sounds really funny, but, you know, when you, read, when you keep... Oregonus is brought up plenty of times. He is. Yeah. Yeah, and this is kind of neat, because it's just as that uh, magical realism, how he uses ventriloquism, Till, yeah. to make Oregonus kind of talk. But my favorite idea of him is that he might actually be talking. Yeah. The donkey's actually moving his lips. But oh, yeah. two uses him plenty of ways to mock. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say him because he's fun. And yeah. I think he's an amazing no. underrated character. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Sure. So we, <laughs> they should have gave him the like the jester's hat. <laughs> so we've got we 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 went through. We hopefully gave y'all a little bit a little bit more to chew on with the history. We went through some of the major uh, characters in the book. And so I think that we can talk about uh, the plot a little bit now that we get to, we'll just keep wading deeper and uh, deeper. So Daniel Kelman's Till loosely follows the famous jester Till Uhlenspiegel as he treks across Europe during the Thirty Years' War. Uh, during his travels as a wandering performer, Till becomes the most famous jester in all of Europe, serving in the royal court of the ill-fated Frederick I and even witnessing the brutality of the Battle of Zusmarshausen. Perhaps the most arresting aspect of the plot is that it occurs non-chronologically, broken up into self-contained tales that function as chapters. Kelman intentionally obscures the reader's understanding of time and narrative through this non-linear presentation, and he dares the reader to understand the story as a moving mosaic in which all the stories converge on the central character of Till. Kelman intertwines small clues to follow the chronology of Till while still challenging the reader to understand and appreciate the story's non-linear fashion. So, of course, if we rearrange the chapters and fit them in order from Till's childhood up to the end of the Thirty Years' War, the major plot would seemingly be Till's journey. Yet, overall, the plot remains to be what each story entails. Each chapter is a vital moment in the war, and in each chapter, Till, of course, is the background and sort of an essence, and not much the main character. So with each tale combined with Till, the hypocrisies of religion mixed with science and the idea of modern justice are exposed. The terrors and unjustifiable selfishness of those who reign during war are exposed. And the time before politics as we know today, meaning the negotiation using the force of words, was sort of meant to be a final reform or remedy to the war. Till's main pursuit is, of course, freedom to outlive death. 
and we get to see the toll and the cost of it during a time of shattered countries and very poor living for nearly everyone in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Daniel Cummin choosing Till to be our guide was personally for me the greatest cast for telling this story of the Thirty Years' War. Not only is Kelman keeping true to German heritage and using its own full character, but he knows that the power of Till and the meaning of his last name is the only way to address and connect these plots in a time that seemed eerily similar to our political climates around the world. Yeah, we should. And so yeah. I've got a cool quote from Kelman as I was listening to an interview yes. when he was talking about writing it. And so many interviewers constantly asked him if he wrote this based off of what was going on currently. Yeah. And he says, uh, I really didn't plan on that. I wanted, to th- I wanted the subject matter to be as remote from our time as possible. But when I started the book in 2013, the world is a very different place. And the times have changed. Now even the plague has a comeback. Big oof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, had to, he had to get one in there. So <laughs> when, he was, when he was finishing yeah. it, it must have been a nightmare. You know? oh, he man. must have thought that he had like, some kind of fortune. Man. And unfortunately, it happened yeah, really I quick. Kind of sort of. <laughs> but yeah. Nice. Uh, I think you guys bring up an excellent point about the nonlinear plot, um, but it shows uh, what it's like to learn about history and news in the medieval times. Okay. Um, in my opinion, it illustrates the concept of education and classism in the time and how education means something different depending on the class of society they live in. If you're a poor farmer, you know, you're the pastor, you get your news from the pastor, um, and then travelers coming to town. But if you're a prestigious family, you'll be surrounded by books and you'll be able to educate yourself, you know, on everything. Uh, but then we see this divide between the people based on where you live and how much you know, and who you know, and what you do. And these concepts are prevalent from the first chapter to its finale. And that gives us another layer of life and kind of more to dive into with the book and to consider uh, life in German society. So the the chapters may be out of order, but if you take your time reading, you're going to see these constants in the book. Um, And let's go ahead and uh, dive a little deeper into the themes. Uh, We could do that. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I really liked how you brought up how like everything kind of like has little points of adding together the story. Yeah. And the readers will really enjoy that kind yeah. of like weird little what is it like it's like a scavenger hunt sort yeah. of for readers. And, and, yeah. And at moments it definitely feels like like what you following is not necessarily like the progression of like this character since it's told non linear non but what you're following is like the progression of these themes of justice mm-hmm. and hypocrisy in each mm-hmm. chapter it does get a little more intense you know yeah. I, I feel yeah. and yeah. so yeah just looking at the major themes of the work what i kind of picked out is uh really the the idea that we came to in the beginning that till is like a free man and so uh till's choice to become this traveling jester in a feudal society uh entails a critical uh choice about his identity his immediate circumstances and then his future Till himself states that a traveling performer is, I put this in quotations, a free man, uh, which is they can come and go as they please, but they're often treated uh, sus and they have (laughs) no protection against the routine dangers of traveling. More, as a jester, Till is afforded a license to fool. He can speak freely and openly to kings and queens and part of his fool's license entails humbling the highborn. Thus, during the Thirty Years' War, during a particularly volatile uh, conflict in which people must be subservient to both the king and the currently mandated religion, Till has a real freedom as a man not bound to any crown. 
the concept of duty in the feudal world and the idea of freedom is a central theme of Till. Kelman creates harrowing images of war-ravished Europe, where peasants and their families are forced into war, bound by religion and ruler to fight in a convoluted conflict they could not understand. And therefore, Till's choice to become a wandering jester to refuse the trappings of the feudal society where human existence is defined by this religious and monarchistic obedience uh, represents a radical break. Yeah, so if you looked at it in the way it's written out of order, it seems possible that you could read each chapter as its own short fairy tale and where Till gets to expose all these cool themes that Patty pointed out as like its whimsical character in each story. But while it's chronologically... Whereas not chronologically, like all those stories are out of order, mm. it kind of feels like that might be a theme to the story too. Like one of the major themes that come and wants to prose for us. Yeah. The yeah the novel is set is in the eyes of an age when memories are altered when written, and the idea of time as non is non relevant to storytelling, especially when we when writing about like one's own great accomplishments. We get yeah. examples like uh, one variation or like I have to talk about different variations for different stories. They're always going to yeah. change for different well, people, yeah. and one example would be when um when the fat count talks about how he had stolen stories of other wars to make his own version of the war mm-hmm. to make him seem memorable to him and believable to his readers another example is the dark memory that till and Nayla both share but tell differently to other people in the book i believe with that writing tool we are forced to dive deeper into understanding the main plot of till because now we get to see the reflection of which till shows his audience and also shows us uh, that although they act foolish, they manage to prove that everyone can be brought to their own to their lowest, no matter which high chair or stump they sit on. It's the disorienting timeline that almost seems like a struggle to follow, but if read closely enough, find the endings for each character, each and every character actually, that Till seems to be the thread that stays the most consistent in every chapter. Mm-hmm. Nice, man. That's a good point. And uh, I have some more themes uh, I want to talk about, but I think it's best to save it for the end of the deep dive discussion. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that um, I think that this sounds about like a, a great time to kick us off. Why don't you get started and uh, give our listeners a little more info about the uh, deep dive discussion? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the deep dive uh, discussion is a portion of the podcast where we finally spoil the novel uh, and dive deep in, into a literary discussion about themes, plots, characters, uh, pretty much in-depth and all combined. And uh, we have this portion in each of our episodes. So if you haven't finished the book, be warned. This is where we're going to spoil the hell out of the book. So without further ado, Robert, go ahead and get started with the deep dive, sir. Of course. So one thing I like to think about is although the book is titled Till, many of the other characters have their own portions of the chapter where Till isn't mentioned, as I said earlier. Uh, their personal experiences of the war are narrated by them, and with each character, we get different settings and an altering order of the periods in Till's life when he accompanies each character. So each character is a perspective of how war affects all classes of people and also helps tell the history portion of the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, I think that's a an excellent point to start with, is that a lot of times uh, Till acts as a side character or a traveling uh, companion uh, an irreverent counterpoint to the uh, decorum and the self-importance and the pomposity of these kings and queens that he finds himself uh, traveling with pretty much for most of the novel. Uh, and what this does is uh, Kelman, uh, through always pairing these guys together, he creates a world of natural character foils, um, warring kings, the court and the clown, and a parade of highborn and lowly characters. Uh, Kelman creates a tapestry of characters that are foiled against Till. Till himself 
is a lowborn anarchistic jester with a license to fool, and he is juxtaposed against this slew of rough and ruthless mercenaries, weary and worrisome travelers, and hard and hapless kings. Kelman brings the character of Till to life through these natural uh, juxtapositions, and in this narrative world that's seeped in these character juxtapositions, Till seems to be the most natural foil. Oftentimes, finding himself alone with other characters in the most interpersonal and intimate moments. In key moments of the novel, uh, kings, beggars, mystics, and mercenaries must look Till in the eye, and the unruly jester becomes that owl mirror reflecting their innermost thoughts. The traveling jester and his companion, Nela, are free men who seem to represent nothing more than the spirit of self-interest and self-perseverance and are natural character foils against the against the decorum and duty-bound kings and queens. More, Till and Nela's experience as lowborn peasants who have firsthand seen the horrors of war and the toil of daily life is a sharp contrast to the pampered kings and the illusion of the royal pageantry. Although Till is, a, is the central character in which most of the other story's protagonists are juxtaposed against, Kelman creates a vivid world in which almost all the characters of Till naturally foil against each other, the hapless winter king in his court against the crass Ludwig and his grisly soldiers, Klaus Uhlenspiegel and the Jesuits, Nela and the winter queen, Kelman's naturally contrasting characters paint his world, and his sustained use of juxtaposition to highlight similarities and differences is duly used to uh, bring to light hypocrisies, but to also call out to our deepest sympathies. Yeah, so yeah. one that we can give an example of a quick character foil, because uh, there's plenty, mm-hmm. but one that I found really interesting was uh, Nela and Martha. Martha is a little girl introduced in the very first chapter. Uh, we don't talk about her as a main character, and there's a purpose to that. She doesn't become one. She doesn't get to be, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a tool that come and use that's just supposed to mess with us a little bit. But although she is written and read as a possible main character, she meets her demise. And the last entry in the novel about her is of the future she will never have. So the husband, at the end of the chapter, there's a quote where she says, the husband she would never have, the children she would never raise, and the grandchildren she would never tell about the famous gesture who she met, which was Till. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naylor, Nayla counters Martha's existence almost entirely. Another thing about Martha is that Till actually extended his hand to her in the chapter, I think we talked about yeah. shoes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, extended his hand to her and offered her to join his circus, to run away with her and be free like them and Nayla. But Nayla's story does not end the same, whereas Martha's kind of fits the demise, Nayla actually has a great ending in her life. She gets exactly what Martha was never going to have. She gets grandchildren. She becomes married. She has a full life. Uh, she becomes just, again, foiled over Martha. And I think that was great because that happened at the very beginning. You get tricked on a main character. And then we get Nayla, who actually overcomes yeah. everything that Cummins was telling us was wrong with war. Yeah, you see these two young female female protagonists who are both given the same choice, and it's kind of like that, you know, two roads diverged in a woods, mm-hmm. and you actually see that the one choice does make all the difference because yeah, it's it's pretty cool the difference between life and death. Yeah, and I love that you brought up uh, Nayla because uh, I know a character for that I really wanted to talk about was between. Um, Nayla and the Winter Queen and how they're both (laughs) kind of these uh, for me when I read the book I saw them as both kind of these binaries for the feminine experience in the medieval world in that Nayla Mm -hmm. comes from like a lowborn family she's forced to to travel she's really to make the ultimate decision to leave everything and everyone and any sense of safety behind for this idea of of freedom 
which is traveling with Till. And the Winter Queen is a high boy, you know, high boy, and she's involved in, like, you know, the state affairs. She's seen Shakespeare himself perform. Yeah. <laughs> and yet it seems like you would think that the Winter Queen has more freedom and privilege than even a regular citizen, but you see that she's bound by this, like, sense of duty now, I, I as really, well. I really like that, that character foil because... I mean, for the most part, most of the women in our, in this book do have a dominant role. Like they they do they play very significant roles. And yeah. I, yeah, I think it's kind of cool how like I guess we can spoil it sort of not too in depth, but they both have the most successful endings. They do, yeah. yeah. And I and I loved that that as well. Just foiling the Winter Queen off Frederick, that Frederick is totally hapless and mm-hmm. he dies, you know, in in almost shame after he's been abandoned. And yeah. the Winter Queen is somebody who like refuses. She even still in exile refuses to give up pretends she has power and <laughs> actually in history guys yeah. her, her whole ploy works out she does get that uh, I think like that extra electricity uh, for her son yeah. yeah she does another yeah. cool character file I just thought of Patty for oh, that yeah? too would be yeah. that uh, you know how you're saying how uh, when you're doing character descriptions I talked mm-hmm. about how the, Elizabeth is like a she wants to be like a. She's on the stage, right? The war yeah. stage. Yep. But Nayla travels on a stage all the time, and it's so funny because it's like one of them is is actually, actually a clown by profession, yeah. but is you know <laughs> serious, and the other one is a queen, but she's really a clown. <laughs> you yeah, know? well, yeah. yeah, that's why everybody made them made them say they were a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's why they're always on the run. Oh yeah. man, that's yeah. Pretty, the character roles were really good. fun. Yeah. I think. No, no, that was really great, yeah. man. And then. Um, there's also the juxtaposition between the Winter King and Till. Of course, that's you a know. huge one major one. Yeah, for sure. uh, it's one of the most permanent one uh, character for is the novel, um, and it's such a stark one because it's literally the king and the jester, mm-hmm. uh, and it happens, you know, naturally, uh, but we see like a deep truth about each character. So p- Till pretty much uh, destroys uh, the Winter King through his cruel portraits and tricks. Uh, on more than one occasion, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and you know we we kind of see what uh, the Winter King is really like, you know, with oh, his, his mentality, uh, like a yeah. state of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think, uh, I think when they go to the camp, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, and he pulls that trick and he falls over. Um, you really see like how helpless the king is, how weak he is. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, dude, and then how uh, Till the jester is actually the one with like. He just it always seems cool. to have this cool upper hand on everyone. He just yeah. always gets every. He just Honestly, always gets it like on everyone. Till's like I, I like you bring up the character fall between Till and the and the Winter King because you know only with the Winter Queen do you really see Till kind of you know have sympathy for one of his kings. Yeah, and yeah. it's the it's the main king of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, like towards the end, like he's there for him up to the very end. He doesn't want to abandon him. You yeah. see him even when he's like talking to Adolf and he's being like straight up disrespected at the club. Yeah. Like Till stands <laughs> Till, Till stands up for him. You yeah. Know? So it's like he you can't talk to him like that. He's the king. Yeah, definitely. And you see like a weird different contrast of character from Till too. Yeah, and it's and like they for, brought that out from each other. For as much as Till is used to highlight that like hypocrisy, especially I'm thinking like in the shaft and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, in the shaft and then with Dr. Kuchu uh in the um light the yeah. magic of light. Oh, when he finally meets him again. Yes, yeah. 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 I think that you also he has a soft spot in his heart for like Frederick and Elizabeth where as much oh, you see like as sure. the hypocrisy of these cruel people you also see like the the deepest kind of sense of humanity them yeah. as well no, I liked it yeah like it made you feel like <laughs> he didn't want to abandon and you know he didn't really dip out on the king and Elizabeth like eventually he knew that everybody has to d- they're on their own at the end of the day yeah, yeah. and I yeah. that's just Tool's got things he's got things figured out he's got to do his own thing too yeah. all rats gotta die Oh, Even Master man. Splinter. <laughs> oh, man. That's no, not from Till. That's from Little Wayne. But <laughs> no, that is a good character for. I really enjoyed 
all three of those. There's definitely more. And if you're a listener and you see that there are other character forms, we'd love for you to share them with us. Oh, yeah, just yeah. a few. And as Patty said at the beginning of the deep dive, there are plenty to yeah, to make pretty from. much all of them. I mean, it, it's really great how he structures this world. It's just full of these like layers of like these character falls, and you definitely see how each of them are different and similar, and they play off one another, especially with the high stakes uh, war drama that's going on. Mm. And uh, th- speaking of the mm. the world, I mean, why don't you tell us about the illusory yeah. world? So, so the the so Till and uh, the illusory world. It's uh, moving on from the deep dive from character foils. I wanted to go ahead and uh, give a little quote from uh, the Bard of Avon himself, uh, Mr. William Shakespeare, who's actually referenced in Till, and I think that this has a... Nice little Easter egg, too. Yes, I think that this has a certain pertinence uh, to the world of Till. It comes from As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7, said by none other than also the famous quote jester Jacques. He says, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and entrances, and one man in his lifetime plays many parts. Uh, there's a whole uh, there's a whole monologue, but I just wanted to uh, put the idea that uh, all the world is a stage in this strange uh, mid-century Europe. Yeah. yeah, even if it's long, non-linear. They, they, <laughs> and they really all or all of them are on the stage. Yes. You know, yeah. Thinking back stage, on it more and more. Yeah. Political, political stage. stage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. uh, in Daniel Kelman's Till, uh, Kelman transports us to this world where the surface has this veneer of neat order. The peasants are taught to respect their station in life, uh, never being too ambitious, whilst kings, queens, and the highborn are bound by a long-standing set of customs, rules, and traditions that dictate their behavior. Kalman constantly explores the tension between illusion and reality, and in Till's world, you are only as legitimate as the illusion you project. Mm. Kings and queens must act kingly in all that they do and must adhere to all the court decorum, lest they break the illusion and delegitimize themselves. A strong man must always project the image of strength at all times in every moment of his life. And to do something like ask to rest during an arduous journey or cough in front of a potential ally uh, instantly shatters the illusion and he is forever branded as weak. All the world is a stage in Kelman's Europe and the royal court may as well be the royal company. Throughout Till, Kelman explores the inherent tension and hypocrisy of the world that regards itself as simple, ordered, and authentic but is actually dictated by a facade of complex rules, mores, and traditions. Uh, a major theme that I found and that I loved exploring in Till is that of the illusory world. What I mean is that all the major figures of Till are bound by these sets of arbitrary rules and decorum that dictate their behavior, and so they behave in this completely shallow way, and it creates this illusory world in which their legitimacy is dictated by whether or not the people around them are willing to play along with that complex set of rules. And so, uh, as we go further into the deep dive discussion, I'd really like to explore the idea of the illusory world that's created by these layers of bureaucracy, decorum, and tradition, and how Kelman uses uh, both Till the character and the narration uh, to explore the hypocrisy of this uh, illusory world. Yeah, really... Like I think Ezra had brought up like the canvas earlier, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's yeah, really, we, that's well, we should bring it up now, man. Yeah, because I had an example yeah. that I wanted to do with like how Elizabeth and Frederick had these stories and kind of like compromising each other's like stature as people, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. But it's like weird how 
even throughout the story, we just see examples of like how Frederick needs to be treated somehow, mm-hmm. but he's not. Yeah. And then we see examples yeah. how Elizabeth should be treated a certain way, but she's not. But one of the best ones is when we see that because they both just we have weird conflictions with their mentality and like the yeah. people they're around. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the best one is when Till provides a gift to Elizabeth, which is a blank white canvas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what this was supposed to do was he tells her, hang this up in your room and only what is it? Only uh, the, the, the smartest yeah. people can yep. see this. Only right? the smart people can yeah, see can this see what's beautiful the, painting. Uh, and people that are like smart and honest. Well, the, uh, high and royal and stuff like that. The yeah, highborn and like uh, people that are. Just a bunch of stuff that, that everybody's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but the one who bothered, was bothered by the most, I think everybody would come into the court and see this and pretend too, right? Kind of following up and falling into the scheme. And yeah, well, it's yeah. like it's like they, the people that are there, it's like you don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. someone's like, look at this. Don't you see a beautiful painting? And Don't you see a beautiful landscape painting? And since Elizabeth is the one who put it up, you kind of have to abide. But, you know, Frederick is just opposed. He didn't, and it's all internal opposition. He doesn't understand whether or not he wants to confront Elizabeth about it too much, reveal that he doesn't see it, but he's the king. It's just a standard that everybody's always trying to keep up. Yeah. I think it's really, uh, it's just... I think we kind of still do that now in our own political climate. Like everybody has to have some kind of weird illusionary standard. We're always following this kind of yeah. objective order that we know we shouldn't. I've been really into the crown lately. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, but really, that, but that's that, an example too. Yeah, yeah, yeah for I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're bound by you know those customs. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they have to uh, they have to do that, you know, and and yeah, and I love that you brought up that white poetry because that's like almost encapsulates that idea of the illusory world that really everyone knows the, the, the canvas is blank. Mm. Even this guy, even the guy who's playing the trick, but like the guy who's playing the trick doesn't know if the guy who gave him the painting is also playing a trick on him. And so it just creates this chain where everyone just has it like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, I, I definitely see it. That's an actual yeah. Till prank in his story yeah. where he actually uses that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I it's like great, that. man. That was like one of my favorite parts of the novel because there's just so many things to like go into it that, you know, I mean... Uh, having like a white blank canvas on your wall and saying, do you see the painting or not? You know, <laughs> well, even like I the mean, illusory world could be like the, with yeah. the Jesuits. The, those dudes were bonkers with yeah, being yeah. illusory. <laughs> they thought they, it's like how we're describing them as just kind of outcasts and runaways, yet mm-hmm. they're still running around just like, yeah, he thinks he's wi- the most like, important guy ever, you yeah, know, and the it's most like, important people. And they're doing a bunch of witch trials against like people who aren't like religious, you know, yeah. whoever's a witch, like they go for Klaus it's just like for yeah. no apparent reason other than that's just a weird justification for, I don't know. Just to like make themselves seem seem important. Yeah, seem important, exactly. Yeah, and it, even though it's just like, do they not know that this guy's actually running from the crown? Yeah. yeah. It's like, but yeah, it's weird. It's like how as we were saying too, these worlds were so secluded that they didn't know yeah. anything outside of it. All these towns are all the same. Yeah. You know, and then when war takes them over, it's just, they're just gone. And then what you were saying was like uh, that, you know, anyone can manipulate the truth. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah the exactly. illusory world within mm-hmm. the writings of people. Self cursor yeah. did it all. He's very dominant. Even Christ yeah. to tell, like, I did make it up. I'm, I'm just, I'm a fraud and all this yeah. stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, but yeah, he didn't like it. But you know, the count, he was all about it. I mean, yeah. even <laughs> he yeah. wanted to write like that. Yeah. Even the fat count who just openly, like, admits that he <laughs> just changes things. He stole this other guy's description. And it just brings up so many. The excuse that he can't remember yeah. on his own. Just like, so all many my failed memory. ideas about authenticity and, and like truth and like yeah. is this illusion that we create, is this somehow more important or more tangible than than the actual truth of the situation, you know? Another cool example, I'll, I'll just well, touch but, on this briefly, is another yeah. book that Cummins wrote, Measuring of the World. Oh, yeah? oh yeah? Yeah, it's a true story about people who were mathematicians, right? Mm-hmm. And one was like a, he was like a, 
what do you call those people that are really young and super smart at what they like do? A prodigy? Yeah, he's a prodigy yeah, mathematician. Okay. So he's eight years old, and I think he discovered something about like the weather. And some guy goes, well, you're too young for that kind of fame. I'll publish it for you. And the guy and the kids are just like, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. But the fact is, like, those illusory things too are happening where it's just these history is written from a different, from a lying perspective. Yeah. Yet it's mm-hmm. fooling everybody. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not it is fact or not. Like I was saying, Kershaw was a real guy, but wrote a bunch of BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, just, totally. but people believed it back then yeah. until it exactly. was actually practiced. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what what was, I mean, how much of a history was correct, you know? Uh, yeah. They, people just yeah. read it. It's not like they're going to go out and try it, I guess. Yeah. I, I love that you, you took the conversation, because uh, I'd actually like to, again, touch upon, like, the foiling element of Till, but I'd like to uh, elevate that discussion to include some of those ideas about, like, the illusory world, its, its inherent hypocrisy, and, like, what history and truth. And so I think that uh, Till the book... Uh, it foils itself against like the haughty historical myths that are associated with the Thirty Years' War. Um, I think Till takes on these historical figures whom are regarded with this uh, kind of reverence, and he makes asses out of them uh, through pointing out their hypocrisy, their selfishness, and their self-aggrandizement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Till the book, uh, I think that it could be interpreted as a collection of uh, satirical uh, pointed folktales that counter-romanticize historical myths and false reverence that we often attribute to these guys like King Frederick I, you know. Uh, Till resists a straightforward historical academic interpretation through this its existence on non-chronology and commonplace fantastical elements. Uh, further, Kelman consistently undermines the authenticity of written history, uh, showing how characters often flourish, borrow, or steal key details, and overall embellish or rearrange elements to prop up their own character. And so I think that try, and, and so I think that tries to make uh, Till uh, the fictional. I think that Kelman tries to make Till the fictional book with talking donkeys and dragons, <laughs> somehow more true and authentic than the written history of the Thirty Years' War by showing how it's embellished or forged like any other of Till's tales. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think Kelman presents a history of the Thirty Years' War that doesn't follow military campaigns or tries to construct like this neat, digestible timeline according to like dates and treaties, and instead he follows a low-born, traveling jester who paints a harrowing mosaic that's uh, caused by destruction, greed, idiocy, and hypocrisy. Mm. Yeah, it's like we get... Instead of it being like a perfect history, we get like the, what the reality was actually like back then. Yeah, I think that he's trying to be like this fictional account of the Thirty Years' War that I made is has more truth in it than what you're going to read because this is how history is created by guys saying, oh, I forgot this and so I borrowed this. Mm-hmm. And some guys saying, hey, let's make a cat piano. Yeah, it's not <laughs> to say that like if you were to look up the history of the Thirty Years' War, it's not inaccurate. It's just more to prove that as it was being written, here's how it was probably like mm-hmm. and it's just like these weird jump arounds of stories mm-hmm. weird memories that you kind of remember don't reflect on that's how it was yeah. back then for these people and that's how it was ultimately written that's yeah. a good character foil yeah i mean part or, of like uh, a story foil yeah. yeah part of the story that maybe we don't get as uh as english as as american readers uh is that the 30 years war in german history is like very much a study topic i don't want to say oh. i don't want to say like it's our version of, like, how people are obsessed with the U.S. Civil War. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, like, make that binary, but uh, I will say that, like, a lot of people uh, really take an interest in this particular war. There's a lot of scholarship and in, in study around it, and a lot of this, like, uh, as we see, like, false pomposity given to this war. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. like the piece of Westphalia was always kind of dominant. I remember really quick, too, I read a short story about during the Napoleonic times, mm-hmm. 
that they were mm-hmm. trying to construct something around the Peace of Westphalia too. Like the, where Napoleon went to Westphalia, and because of that, there was a large conflict with the treaty still in act too. So even two hundred something years later, it was still a very hot topic of discussion. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah. even even the way that we talked about the Peace of uh, Westphalia as it's set up is it did all these things like set up modern nation states, set up mm. principles of non of non international interference. It's like well. It still didn't actually solve the conflict. Like yeah, we talk exactly. about it, like it did all these th- legacy things, but actually the fighting con- the fighting still continued, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, people got to stick to their word. So I just, yeah. I don't know. I, I love the idea that he's presented a, a, a bunch of lies. You know, mm-hmm. Daniel Kelman's just presented a bunch of lies that somehow are more truthful than like the, the actual written history. I love yeah. that idea, even if it's like not necessarily It's a step like through fiction, he gave yeah. us, Facts. I love that he just challenges that. Even if you know people, some people will say, "Oh, you you full of, you full of BS, Patty." <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I don't think so. No, it's great though because I mean, there's always a bias to every writer, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and in history, there's a bias too. You know, the historian mm-hmm. has a bias, and uh, though it should, it's more factual with uh, their information. But yeah, I mean, the history is written by the winner, man. That's what they say. I guess that's, yeah, I haven't heard that saying in a long time. Yeah, man. It reigns true today with this. Um, so, uh, now that we covered foils, I did want to go back to themes. Uh, my themes, uh, I wanted to touch base earlier. Yeah. It was uh, justice, education, tr- and truth. Um, we see these uh, themes illustrated with shoes as Martha's village uh, lacks the knowledge of what is happening in the world around them. And the ability, lack thereof, to see the truth of Till's antics. Uh, it, it doesn't take the reader long to realize that the village is like, or at least for me, it, mm-hmm. the village is a microcosm to the world of Till. Yeah, I think that's fair. Sure. Uh, there's also the absence of justice in this village, uh, which also adds to this idea. So as the villagers begin to pick up their shoes, they begin to fight over the likeness of their shoes, but it becomes a fight about their resentment to each other, which uh, could be kind of like a metaphor to the circumstances of the 30-year war. Mm. It um, began with the local conflict and about religion, and then it became the, about power you know, and resentment for each other. Uh, in, in the countries. So while these characters start brawling with each other and the village goes into utter chaos because promises weren't kept and these grievances came out in this fight, uh, like a daughter didn't marry a son, a cow wasn't sold to the yeah. fiber. <laughs> you know, the, I think these themes uh, are in shoot that are in shoes also are in uh, the rest of the novel. You know, the lack of truth uh, here is also in, uh, just Marshhausen, uh, as you pointed out, Robert, you yep. know, and the lack of justice is in every chapter, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the Lord of Air, uh, part two, during Klaus's trial with its made up twisted evidence, you know, that turned mm-hmm. family against family and neighbor against neighbor. You know, it's astonishing to see that the, that trial occur and the lengths of the Jesuits went to ensure their quest to abolish witchcraft would be completed, even if they had to invent the enemy. The enemy, um, and it, it really makes you think about what is truth, what is justice, you know. Um, and I think the most important part of the trial. I mean, there's a dozen reasons, but um, it made me wonder how uh, 
throughout history, how much has been twisted like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't want to dive too much off topic or anything, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's a strange thing. I wonder how much of it is, uh, how much truth is in there, like you were saying, Robert. I guess, uh, like, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, most of it, again, you're just kind of character foiling again. It's kind of dope because you see it kind of repeating itself throughout the book, right? All these injustices yeah. going on until it almost finds justice towards one of the chapters, which is the one where he's in the car with Kersher. Yeah, yeah the great... Uh, but oh, it's not like okay. it's not like a like a what is it, like a justice with the an audience like how the Jesuits yeah. kind of manipulated yeah. like another that illusory audience to to make him seem like they were almighty. Yeah, Taylor's just gonna pull out his own justice. But unfortunately, Cursor does live. But you know, I think it's a it's it's so much to talk about to think about. Yeah, it's just I think when you read about Klaus and stuff, it's just more unfortunate. Because you yeah. see somebody comes in to try to save him. And even then, he's also what considered a scholarly person, too. Mm-hmm. You get the Jesuits denounce him and then put that person in jail. So then Klaus is ultimately completely screwed. Yeah. You know, and it's just weird how. Yeah. They I'm cool with it. It was just like straight a, up McCarthyism. We see that now. Like you're looking for examples. Yeah. Like McCarthyism like didn't happen that wasn't that long ago. Which trials yeah. happened in America, too. Yeah. Uh, just made up enemies. Yeah, this happens all the time during history, yeah. you know, like... Uh, right now, it's happening with people, like, journalists yeah. are being considered... Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just witchcraft, like, all of y'all are writing fake news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and any, fall like, for really it. anyone with voice and authority can mm-hmm. manipulate what is truth and what is justice. Yeah. You know? And it's just, like, what, what's that What's that illusion that you put behind you yeah. to create well, that facade? And I think, you know, on the topic of of justice, yeah, I think that Till is a book in which justice is mostly absent. Um, I, I think a yeah, lot of these people, true. a lot of these, a lot of these guys, they really don't get what's coming to them. When you think yeah, about, you true. know, when you really think about like the war and the plague and the devastation, uh, a lot of these guys did not really answer um, to the public for their crimes. But I think that's where Till comes in. Is that Till is kind of. I guess he's kind of he's teaching kind of teaching though. the leader in a way, like in that Rambo way, where oh, like okay. the, the only justice you get is the justice you take. You know, like, <laughs> like really though, but really though, yeah, but, but really like yeah. like they they're given some form of justice in that they have to look themselves in the owl mirror. You know, they have to a lot of times like these characters at the very ends of their lives, they have to look themselves and till and confess all their sins. You know what I mean? Yeah, you like, get yeah, back to true. shoes. It happens in sh- it maybe happens. He in tells shoes. them too. Yeah. He's like. Are y'all stupid? Like he's, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know. Is he oh, more yeah, upset? He yeah. yeah. Is he more upset yeah. that they fell for that? Like he mm-hmm. put them there, but they fell for, he's like, you know, that's another one I tried and this yeah. town ultimately gets wiped out. I don't know. It's not like to punish them. It's just maybe he wanted somebody to feel something. And so I think maybe the justice, maybe Till's justice is, is forcing these people to acknowledge that they're, you know, full of crap and stuff like Dr. Kirchner. He openly admits everything I've written is a lie. I've disgraced mm-hmm. myself, you know. I was yeah. running away from the church. Um, the miner in in the shaft commit, you know, admits that he like committed various different war crimes oh, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, all, they all expect to die. And you know, you know? Kelman brings up when he writes about these characters and all these moments of un, like unjust and stuff that he liked Till to just be roaming free. Like we don't, he yeah. doesn't need Till himself likes learning about. He doesn't want these justices to be answered all the way. He likes it to be up in the air. Like I don't understand how Till gets out. I don't know. I think that. that I think that he kind of lives. If you ask me, I think that Till kind of lives through that moment where some guy, you know, some some guy is just like you know reduced to like a weeping sad sack, and he's just forced to like 
admit he was wrong and all he knows that all the things that he did were unjust and wrong and i think mm-hmm. till i think till kind of lives for that i think yeah but <laughs> that kind of happened i guess just being around till you just yeah expunge yourself yeah he just kind of brings that out yeah because he thought he was gonna die too i mean does until never really reveals himself only really to um frederick v right yeah, I think that's the the only guy where he has like actually like a touching moment with him, mm. and the yeah. rest of them, it's all like pay for your sins. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Nayla too. Mm-hmm. Oh, with Nayla, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised they didn't. I liked how they never hooked up. I like how they were just on a parallel path. Yeah, yeah, really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that she was definitely yeah. served what she, she got, what she deserved. She, yeah, and that's yeah, a good li- thing. Living a yeah. full life, having a family. I mean. Yeah, what more can you ask for? In a I guess for her, she play. found the truth of her existence. I guess right. Maybe, maybe that. Yeah, maybe that's like the the theme of of Till is that your justice and your truth is what you choose to live. You know, and Till chooses to say, you know, if we get this medieval world, I'm not going to be a miller. I'm not going to be the son of a miller. I'm going to go be a traveling jester. Nayla says, you know what? I don't want to live in this bum town, marry this dude who I'm forced to marry. Why don't I just, you know, create my own truth? I'm now this traveling companion, and my brother <laughs> murdered this guy. <laughs> well, I, I think we tried talking about who did it. Yeah. You know, yeah. oh, we can't get into this. We yeah. can't. We can't. If somebody do out there kind of figured it clue. out. That'd be cool. But you know, like, um, Till was pretty much forced to leave. I mean, it's like how yeah. you, you like to talk about the things of justice and education. Till yeah. literally got those from Klaus. Yeah. He got an education from being around Klaus. How I believe yeah. how like maybe that's why Till's a little different. Yeah. Even though there's like those weird spiritual effects that everybody will read, like, yeah, like in the one chapter where he does some weird things as a child, Voodoo. yeah, yeah, which are brought up as like as like, um, like memory, like repressed memories, yeah. But yeah. also, Till gets to see how justice doesn't get served with, with his own father again. Yeah. So I think Till, growing up, always had the basis of education might fail you. It's not going to make you everything. Right? Yeah, he's cursor yeah. is a horrible person. He's well educated up there. His dad was well educated and he dies. And then the justice system fails him too. So he's out there doing his own thing. He he reformed it, and instead of selling it to people with words, he just acted on his own. Yeah, yeah. with the gesturely like acts yeah. and stuff. Shows this. Uh, we don't have anybody like that today, do we? Who's like um, using man. their skill set to? Uh, I don't know. Stephen invoke, Colbert, John uh, Stewart. Hey, Hat- <laughs> education and justice. Yeah, no, Hattie X, buy my newest book, please. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, Better have them by the time this episode <laughs> comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that was really great uh, deep dive discussion. I thought I thought we really touched a lot of great literary points until. Does anyone have like uh, I guess anything to add before we just kind of like transition into like kind of like the free stuff, the one off things that yeah, I think we I think, each wanted to mention? Well, not really to add to what we talked about because I think we could end up going for days. So yeah. I think the point is, if our listeners would love to join, eventually we could have a discussion online and everybody can write out their stuff too for the themes and maybe coincide with me, Ezra, and Patty, and just yeah. we can rediscuss these in a different more. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh, there's so much to, we and can I mean, those, together a Discord yeah. and talk. Everything's kind of hidden right? in the book and, too, and those those themes are so like big, even in like mm-hmm. the idea of education, truth, and justice. There's so much to discuss within each of those like individual themes. We try to cover it in a very broad manner, but man, if y'all got some thesis for us on Discord, please hit us with that. Yeah, we'll yeah. hopefully be able to do something like that where we can get more in tune with the readers and see what they like, and then we can contrast too. Yeah, yeah that'd be awesome, man. That'd be really uh, fun. Yeah, part of I, the Sunday Hustles book crew with us. Yeah, yeah dude. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have anything more to add. I, 
There's some random stuff I want to talk about. Yeah, you want you want to get started? Yeah, just mean, like the free swim. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Till's weird night in the woods. Um, oh, as a kid, man, we we're gonna the, spoil that. That one's yeah. good though. Yeah. Yeah. No, we are spoiling it. Right yeah. now. Go for uh, it. He put a uh, he killed the donkey, skinned the head off, and put it on him. Yeah. Yeah, but and you have to think that he do that. I don't think he was meant. To, I don't think he was like coherent. I think it was because of uh, what his mother did. Uh, she did the spell, mm-hmm. but she did it wrong. Yeah. Uh, when she was like pregnant with the baby, yeah, that, was, that yeah. was an escaping spell, though I think. But do you think like the some side effect was Till losing his mind? Uh, they that talk night? about like that spirit at the same time. Well, they right? talk about that spirit in the wood that's yeah. following you. Yeah, there's like a spirit. I uh, there's the cold something woman in there. Yeah. There's yeah. Little people happens. Or? There are like six different mystical things in that forest. In that yeah. one yeah. chapter, <laughs> they talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> and true, we man. never hear them again. But they're yeah. like. The forest is haunted. There's a cold woman in there. There's yeah. little people in there. If, yeah. if we have a German listener who knows what these things are, German folk tales, yes. you know, please hit us up, man. Yeah, please please uh, illuminate those elements for us because those are some elements that we kind of like just uh, totally maybe like missed. Um, well, I yeah, could bring it up. I can loop it around. Yeah. Since Ezra was talking about the like spell that his mom used, Yeah, we and Patty, we talked about this earlier. Remember, Patty, how... Um, uh, Kersher uses it to escape from Till, but it's yes. a bastardized version, right? Yeah. So it's just yeah. the same thing. He's rewriting something somebody else wrote in order for him to have it. Yeah. But it worked for him, though. And I, I love that. Because he, he does escape from Till. But with his mother, yeah. I don't think it invoked anything spiritually with Till. I think something happened with Till where he was just like that weird mysticism that we get where he might be possessed at the story. Yes. Yeah. Can I like, do it? I don't understand. Can Go I ahead. throw it Toss sure. it in. Can I throw it? So when he, when he killed the donkey. He spirit bonded with the donkey, and oh that's why God. that's why him and Origines are the only two left at like the end of the novel. <laughs> that's why that's why wherever that's why wherever Till goes, the donkey is always safe. Isn't it kind of weird I'm that this? That, isn't yeah. it kind of weird that this donkey manages to survive the plague, famine, like six different ba- <laughs> six different battles, along with like mounted artillery from like the king of modern warfare, Call of Duty, Gustavus Adolphus. <laughs> And the donkey is like, okay, well, now that that's over, I'm gonna go write a book. Like I'm, yeah. I think, I, I think was Till, bring that up. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Till had maybe spirit bonded with the donkey, and so him and the donkey will yeah. always be safe. Dude, yeah, what if, like, you know how we have to like emphasize that Till wasn't the narrator? Yeah. What if it's because it's a rigginess? Yes. What? Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, oh my mind. god. Your uh, mind. Yeah. Told you, man. We brought him up in the character yeah. for a reason. All right, we're diving back deep into this one, guys. The unreliable <laughs> narrator. No, but it is cool that like I really enjoyed that. You know, I don't want it to feel like it's like some kind of plot point that didn't need to be there because yeah. it is slightly brought up. Like I said, yeah. it's like repressed memories where like Till has these nightmarish moments where he remembers yeah. doing that thing. Yeah. Because it freaked out everybody. And he also says he's he's also says he's the devil to screw with people as well. But we yeah. don't know if that's true or not, but yeah. he love screwing with people and telling them that. I like to like think like um how we were saying earlier how Cummins wanted Till's character to be somebody who practices. He's not yeah. like giving these powers of being who we see as Till, somebody who can tight wire or uh, walk on a tight rope mm-hmm. and do all these pranks and just think very differently. I I feel like maybe that might have been what went on with the spiritual moment. Yeah. But I think that was just just natural causes too. Like yeah. his environment growing up and his will to get up and get out. And, be an yeah. entertainer it takes practice like he's always practicing and never once did it seem like till was just able to do what he was able to do yeah and he always even, talks about him doing and even practicing. at the end you see him losing a step a little bit too, oh that's very you know? true yeah. yeah and he pretends like it's purposeful yeah. like he did it on purpose mm-hmm. I, I i like that yeah like you know even like thinking if he was the devil i always try to see i think i asked you all this question when we finished it if you thought till was immortal mm-hmm. yeah i was gonna bring that up because yeah. of because of something um, like that yeah but i mean i, I think, think so. that 
is left open-ended because the source material, the the chapbook, yeah. is also open-ended with his mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know if he was a real person, if he even died, or if that the grave in Germany that they like the shrine they have for him mm-hmm. is like even for Till Ugenspiegel. Just some uh, dog. I, you know, yeah. I thought in the book that. Till was more. We see him bleed. He is more. God, gods can bleed. <laughs> yeah, Till, what is that three hundred quote? No, I, I think it's like. <laughs> that's what is that dude's name? It doesn't even but, matter. Yeah, no, I thought that Till was mortal, but it's his his fame and his like perception and his wit and his character that makes him immortal. It's and it's also that little that that uh kind of like rebelliousness that he has in him that you know i refuse to die that's what he says when yeah. i think that's what he says to the effect of when elizabeth offers him a comfy retirement he's like no i refuse to i refuse to die yeah. and i think that even if you know we all know eventually till the human will die i think that that makes him immortal in, in yeah. some way yeah and then yeah maybe just getting to like some secondary themes that i didn't get that we didn't get to cover one theme just like me that i really would have liked uh was um the birth of the German language. We see it oh, play yeah. out in the background of the book. Uh, at the beginning of the book, people are trashing on German. They're calling it like a very like like a dirty and like harsh, poor language. Yeah, very harsh and poor. And there are a couple moments of comedy when Gustavus Adolphus and uh, the king and the Winter King are talking, and one of them is using a high uh, German, in, a high German, and the other one is using low German. Uh, but by the end of the book, we see that German has flourished into this uh, beautiful language, the premier language of poetry. And I think that's a little bit of a transformation in the background uh, that unfortunately we didn't get to explore too much because none of us <laughs> none of us speak German or can understand <laughs> German. But I'm sure that like in the German translation of the book, it's done like very beautifully. I think Kelman would definitely appreciate you touching base on yeah, that. Yeah, no, really. Considering the book is originally written in German. Yeah, please, no. And if anyone, uh, any German readers or anyone who has read the book in German or can just like uh, illuminate that point for us, like please tell us more. We would love to hear more about like uh, this little like subplot in the background because I think my it is important too. That, like, Elizabeth also kind of like craps on it too. Yeah, because she's all yeah. about this highborn poetry, mm-hmm. and she's always yep. like, and she's like German. I don't want a German play. I want Shakespeare. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Yeah, I didn't really have too many other things to talk about. I, I feel like y'all were ready to do the cool stuff to talk about. And I was yeah. like, let's go. These are dope topics. <laughs> you're just gonna sit. You're just gonna sit okay. there and play the cat piano yeah. while we. <laughs> yeah, that was probably the only one I wanted <laughs> yeah. to bring up because like yeah. Kersher was such a weird character, you know. Yeah, but like, he's insane. Get him a little. Like, yeah, I guess he is pretty much in the shoes. He starts almost. Every, I think when we were discussing this book, I asked that weird question: if maybe it's Kersher's fault that we even have to. Like what do you oh, think? Yeah. I, I'm asking a question. Like a like yeah. a bat like a Batman thing like a, like, <laughs> oh, like he created the, Batman. Yeah, oh, oh, I yeah. don't know who killed his parents. Who cares anymore? But yeah, like the thing like <laughs> yeah. like yeah. Who, uh, the Wayne parents. Yeah, no, yeah. I I get that though. Uh, he goes in that pursuit. He just instead of being a and, Batman, he's a and, jester. And it kind of makes sense uh, in going in that regard. Did Kershaw and Testimon like kind of create? Till, it kind of makes sense that these religious guys who are full of BS would actually create this anarchistic, um, seemingly atheist, atheistic guy, maybe even not atheistic, but yeah, this antichrist figure, then, yeah. this antichrist figure who's actually full of substance, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, Kersher didn't do anything cool. No. I mean, he built a cat piano. Who wants to describe that for our right? Because I'm, I'm just uh, kinda... Yeah, so pretty much a cat piano, which we've been, like, joking around with the whole time. Um it's uh, you have all the keys on the keyboard, but when you hit a key, 
you are striking a cat, a, a different cat on each key with something, and it makes a yelp each time, and it, it's crying in pain. Don't worry, but I Googled it, and I don't think anybody made it. Like Thank I said, God. cursor stuff yeah. wasn't practiced, practiced. Yeah. and I think when people were like reading on what they wanted to attempt, I think they just passed up. Yeah, on that one's point. like, okay, Thank let's, God, let's see that out. He was ready to do it, though. <laughs> <laughs> he said, go back to insane. Rome and like just start making Capianos for the Pope. Yeah. Pope was all about it. Um, I think my favorite chapter was uh, the great uh, art of light and shadow. Yeah. When he meets Dr. Kitcher. Yeah. That, uh, that's a good one. I like how it head fakes you, too. You think something's going to happen. Kuchu does a till, and he just <laughs> yeah. gets away. Yeah, no, no, that's great, man. Um, all in all, man, fantastic book. So many yeah. things to talk about. Uh, a lot more we could discuss. If you guys uh, are interested in talking more, you know, um, contact us on yeah, our social keep an media. Eye out for like Hit a Discord website. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll be coming out with Discord to come up with additional things um, in between episodes. Um, but yeah, while we wrap up this podcast, guys, yeah. I enjoyed Till very much, and I hope everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We could do a quick review of our preview of our next book. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. uh, excited for that one. For for the next book, uh, we're gonna cover uh, Hurricane Season uh, by Fernanda Melkor. And uh, Robert, would you like to tell us a little more about the impending storm, Hurricane Season? Oh, of course. Just a quick top, real quick, if, if for our readers that are noticing that we're doing a lot of the International Booker Prizes yeah. from last year, it's because there were great stories, and we decided to do Hurricane Season again for purposes of what it's about, and also its uh, writing style is also important. That We'd like yeah. to discuss so mm-hmm. uh, for her book uh, hurricane season by fernanda melkor uh, it's a book that's supposed to put the reader amidst the chaos of going what's going on in mexico during mm-hmm. those times uh femicides and stuff the constant dialogue and continuously changing scenarios never let you rest or think the story is about several characters who are all connected in a murder mystery but because of the lifestyles they all live and where they live it's almost terrifying and frustrating to follow what is actually happening that connects all these incidences and it's this particular hurricane between the people that has all of them in the eye of it. Mm-hmm. And so hurricanes come with a metaphor. I think hurricanes actually happen in the book, too. Yeah. yeah. But the, the writing, which I can't wait to talk about in our next episode, I think everybody who's possibly read the book would love to hear about it, too, triggers anxiety for the readers. But the story just keeps moving forward because Fernanda masterfully unfolds the mystery of the witch's death almost effortlessly towards the end after she drug us along all these atrocious actions we aren't supposed to believe are believable. Instead of reflecting at a pause, she just keeps you reading on, on like a purpose. She forces you mm-hmm. to keep reading yeah. and basically at her will. Yeah. And that is hurricane season. Yeah, it's a fair warning. It is pretty gruesome. Yeah, that is, too. Uh, uh, pretty, uh, do we want to put an age on that for anybody? I, yeah, no, I, I don't uh, think so. But I love that it's it's challenging, and that's what I love about all these books we've read yeah. from the memory police till, and now moving on to hurricane season. And is that mm-hmm. they're all each in their own unique way, so challenging. And I really look forward to getting to uh, discuss uh, hurricane season, not only with you guys, but with our other uh, crew of hustlers out there as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, hustlers, for Thanks joining again, us guys. for another episode of the Sunday Hustlers book uh, podcast. Uh, join us next time, uh, which will be very soon. Uh, yeah, thank you all for tuning in. Have a good day. Check out all our social medias, everybody. Yes, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that fun stuff. Check out our website. And yeah, we'll talk soon. See you guys next time. Later, hustlers.